Our great God, we, we, we praise you this evening for the marvel of your grace. We, we remember your grace in our own lives, the grace which called us, which saved us, with, which drew us to yourselves. We, we praise you for this grace. We will be singing your praises for this grace for all eternity. And we pray tonight you help us understand your grace more when it comes to the salvation of, of the little ones and just what your word says about it. It's a humbling topic, a, a large topic, yet in, in ways complex. So we just pray you, you enlighten us, help us to study, to, to cut it straight from Scripture, and to, to learn what your word has to say about it. Bless our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I hope you're all settled. We're going to just jump right in. We have a lot of ground to cover. And uh, so I actually will tell you today, if you have some questions, write them down and maybe save them for the end, because we're going to just be going pretty, pretty quick tonight. Might have to keep you a little bit longer than our 45 minutes. We'll see. What? Yeah, right. <laughs> Surprise, right? But we're back to finish the, the study we started last week on infant salvation. We're in this larger study in the doctrines of grace. We just finished studying this huge topic of election. But before we move on, there's a few related topics we've wanted to cover. And this is the, the best time and place to do that. A couple weeks ago was heathen salvation. And then infant salvation. Can infants be among the elect? Are they among the elect? They obviously don't have the ability to hear the gospel and believe the gospel, so can they be saved or not? What does the Bible say about that? It's a huge question. It's a relatively common question. I'm sure you would at least want to know. So we've been studying it. We started into it last week, covered some, some basic truths, affirming like, yes, infants are real persons. Yes, they are in need of salvation. But scripture does not directly teach on infant salvation one way or another, meaning there's no direct statement saying all infants are saved or none are. There's, there's no statement suggesting even any are lost. It's just there's no direct statement. That doesn't say the Bible says nothing about the topic. Many believe, for example, there's one prominent example of infant salvation in 1 Samuel 12:23. We looked at that last week where David at least believe that his son who died would be in heaven waiting for him when when he showed up well we finished by asking if infants are saved how how would an infant be saved if they are saved we concluded it, it would be well the same way by god's grace working through his unconditional election they must enter the kingdom the same way as everyone else through the door of christ they, via the new birth, they must be regenerated, like everyone else, to enter the kingdom of heaven. We say, though, how this regeneration is a work of God via the Holy Spirit. And scripture teaches that God accomplishes it according to his own will. So God is certainly capable of regenerating an infant, should he choose to do so. In fact, we looked at two possible examples of infant regeneration in scripture, through the examples of Jeremiah and John the Baptist. So that was all last week. That, that's it. We've got to leave it there and move on. But we kind of laid the foundation and the groundwork for this delicate yet involved topic. Our conclusion last time, as far as we got, is that infant salvation is at least possible. God certainly could save all infants if he chose to do so. We acknowledge that infants don't merit salvation on their own. If they are saved, it's, it's still a marvel of God's grace and mercy as it is for all people. But it just left us with one major question, namely, well, does God want to save all infants? You know, does he choose to save all infants? If that's how it's going to be, that's obviously our last big question. Does he do this or not? Does, does he actually choose to, of his own free will, choose to elect and save all infants who die in, in, in a young age or not? Do we have any reason to believe that infants are among the elect? Of course, those who perish. As I said last week, this is my position. I believe that God has chosen to unconditionally elect all those who die in infancy and early childhood, as well as those born with certain severe mental disabilities. This is also, like we said last week, believe it or not, the majority position of Calvinists. Most Calvinists believe in infant salvation. It's actually only the Calvinistic position that can logically account for infant salvation, because we believe in a sovereign God who saves people according to his will. But it just comes down to this, which is what we're going to tackle today. And it's still a big topic. Does scripture lead us to believe it's God's will for him to save all infants? We, we certainly know it's not his will, his ultimate will to, to save all adults. Not all are, are saved. Not all are among the elect of adults. 
So why would we say that infants or young children are any different? How can we say that God would elect an entire class of people, namely infants or young children, what, just based on their age? Did the scripture say anything about this, lead us in this direction or not? How can we say something like that when scripture makes no direct statements at the very least? Well, this is where we can pick up from where we left off last week and and keep going. So let's do that now. We're framing this whole discussion with a series of questions, and so from your, the handout last week, you've got a new one this week with just a few more questions, but you know it's a substantial one. Why believe that God has elected all those who die in infancy? That's what it comes down to from a Calvinistic perspective. You know, infants, they're not meriting salvation or earning it. It's not like they're truly innocent, that they're still sinners. They're born sinners, we, we established. So the position is we're believing that God has simply chosen to unconditionally elect them. Why would we believe that? Well, that's what we're going to cover now. Again, there's no silver bullet verse on this. It's just not directly addressed. There's not a verse that says God saves all infants. But we base our belief in infant salvation on several key strands of truth in Scripture that that take us in that direction. You could say that the, the stool of infant salvation is supported by three very strong legs. You can picture it that way. And so let's cover these. Number one, God's view of children. God's view of children. Throughout scripture, God appears to have a, a high view of children, which is to say he shows favor on little ones. Also, there are many instances where God does not hold little ones accountable for sin and rebellion in the same way. He holds adults accountable for sin and rebellion. Got some examples here. I'm going to just read them through for you to, to save time. And again, we're, we're going quick. So hope you're, you had some coffee. But Deuteronomy 1, 39. Remember, after the wilderness generation, God condemned the entire generation of the Exodus for their wickedness. None of them were allowed to enter the promised land except who? Children under 20. The cutoff was, for some reason, age 20, Numbers 14, 29. But God said later in Deuteronomy 139, condemning the people, he said, Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Why were all the people excluded from the Holy Land? Well, because of their sinful rebellion, disobedience, and unbelief. Because of this, they were judged, and they all died in the wilderness. But their little ones were not judged like this. They were allowed to enter the Holy Land. Why? Well, because they didn't share in this willful rebellion, disobedience, and unbelief. God himself said they had no knowledge of good and evil. That phrase, that's the same phrase used to describe Adam and Eve before the fall. They were not knowing good and evil which is obviously referring to their their innocence. Now, that's not to say that the little ones in Exodus were not sinners or inherent in that ultimate sense, but they had no knowledge of good or evil. And so God was not holding them accountable for the rebellion, disobedience, and unbelief that prevented the rest of the generation from entering the Holy Land. At the very least, it's a significant example Because throughout the Bible, the Holy Land is used as a type of heaven, right? That's the promised land. It's it's that picture of heaven. Now, who's kept out of that promised land? Unbelievers, rebels, sinners. Who is allowed in? Well, that next generation who believed plus the little ones. It says something about how God at least is viewing and holding accountable the little ones. Now, we're going to move on. We're going to save conclusions for later. We're just going to get through some passages first. So I'm going to keep going here. 1 Kings 14, 9 through 13. I'm just going to summarize this. The reign of Jeroboam, one of the most wicked kings. And God was passing judgment on Jeroboam and his whole household. Jeroboam was this extremely wicked and idolatrous king. He even performed child sacrifice. That's how wicked he was. And so Jeroboam and all of his sons, his whole household, household, they were all sentenced to death by God. And they were to suffer the greatest dishonor in the culture, which was to not be buried, not have an honorable burial. This was a shameful death. However, 
Jeroboam's infant son was the only one spared from this fate. God himself decreed that the infant son alone would meet a peaceful death and would have an honorable burial. And listen, why? 1 Kings 14, 13. God's saying, all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel and the house of Jeroboam. Very interesting text. This is God talking. It says of this infant, something good was found in him alone, not of the adults or the adult sons. It's a huge question. What's the something good? And th- there's no answer in the text. The text just doesn't say. It, it's clearly not an inherent merit or righteousness. We know enough in scripture to conclude that. What could it be? I think we're left only to infer a form of innocence, a relative innocence. We're going to come back later and talk about a relative innocence of children. But the point is this, Jeroboam's household was extremely wicked, and he and all of his sons, they were held accountable because they participated in all these evil deeds. But this infant son was not held accountable because he, he did not participate. Notice there's a discontinuity. There's a distinction and accountability based on an actual participation in in evil and wickedness. Even though still a sinner from birth, the child was not culpable for any deeds of sin and was simply shown favor by the Lord. He simply found God's favor, which is his prerogative. Now Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11. You recall Jonah Jonah wanted God to judge Nineveh because of how extremely wicked they were. But God said he was going to spare the city. And without getting into more, we're trying to be quick here. But why, why was God going to spare the whole city of, of Nineveh? Listen to what God says, Jonah 4.11. God says to Jonah, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right hand and left hand, as well as many animals. God, this is an obvious reference to infants and young children. It's an idiom in in Hebrew referring to those in youth. They don't know the difference between the right and the left, like your kids, basically. And so God is saying he's going to spare the city, and on account of of whom? Not not on account of the wicked, but on account of all the little ones. This was a, a massive city, some estimate... 600,000 plus adults in the ancient world, Nineveh. But we see the same point, a simple point, that children were not being held accountable for the sins of Nineveh. Nineveh, because they didn't participate in the sins of Nineveh. In fact, God even spared the entire wicked city on their account. And here we have another verse that continues to tie this concept of, of accountability to knowledge. We see in scripture, we're going to see it more, where accountability for sin is tied to knowledge of sin. Some level of knowing right from wrong, good from evil, seems to be required for accountability. They're still sinners, but we're talking accountability for sin. Infants have no such knowledge and seem to not be held accountable, at least in the same way as adults. Now, just stay with me. We're going to come back to that point later, talk about that accountability issue later. One more verse, though, Ezekiel 16. You see the references before you. It's it's God now condemning Israel because now they as a nation had gone so far astray, they were continuing the sin of Jeroboam, and they were performing child sacrifice. Even Israel or, or Judah were performing child sacrifice. And so God says this in judgment now on them, on, on his own people. Ezekiel 16, 21 He condemns them and says, You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Earlier in the chapter, God pictured all Israel like a child that had been born and was immediately cast aside by the way in the wilderness. Israel was pictured as a, a child, not aborted, but essentially right after birth, just cast by the road, which in the ancient world, that's what they did sometimes. Instead of abortion, they would just leave a child to exposure to die. And God pictures Israel like, that was you, but I had compassion on you. I saw you and took compassion. So in the same chapter, you already have a, 
a context of God's compassion for the helpless, pictured as a newborn. And then later, you see in Ezekiel 16.21, God is, is laying claim on these children. He condemns them for sacrificing not their children. He says, you sacrificed my children. These were my children. They're owned by God. They're viewed as his possession. It just continues to, to build this high view of children. God has a, a high view of little ones, in, at least in the Old Testament. So, so far in these verses, we have a consistent theme that children are, are not held accountable for the sins of the people. Even though, yes, they're sinners. Yes, they have inherited guilt from Adam. But God doesn't view their sin and guilt in the same way as he does adults who have actually committed willful acts of sin and rebellion against God. They don't know right from wrong. And for that reason, they seem to escape accountability for sin. Now, so far, these verses, they kind of leave us with a tentative conclusion. I I think they just take us into the direction of of infant salvation. But we're going to still hold off on conclusions, and we're going to keep going. There's a second strand of evidence that I think continues to lead us to a view of infant salvation. You could say a second leg in the stool, a second leg of support. And that would be Christ's view of children. We've seen at least God the Father's view from the Old Testament coming into the New Testament, often through the the view of, of God the Son. Let's look at Christ's view of children. Anytime you discuss infant salvation, everybody knows, you know, a pair of verses from Jesus, a pair of comments Jesus made about children. They always come up. They definitely teach something about how God views children and what children represent to God, which is going to be the same as Father and Son, of course, for God the Father, God the Son. So these these verses, they have to be accounted for. Let's see what they say, what they mean. And like I said, I think they continue to lead us in the direction of infant salvation. This one I'll have you turn to. So turn to Matthew 18 now. Grab a Bible and, and turn to Matthew 18. And the next one will be Matthew 19, so they'll be back to back. I'm positive if you've been around in the church for a little while, you've heard of these. These will be familiar. But let's take another look at them. Matthew 18, I'll read 1 through 6. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, first off, This verse is not directly teaching on infant salvation. Jesus is using children as a type or as a model of believers. The point is Christians must become like children to be saved. And throughout this this phrase, little ones, it's referring to, to Christians who have been made like children. And we would say, you know, they have the faith of a child, right? Childlike faith. That's that's the point here. That's the main point. That's clear. But why did Jesus use children as a picture of a born-again believer? That's kind of the, the food for thought here. Obviously, they're the model of dependency, trust, innocence, and above all, humility. That's what he points out. Their humility. They're humble in spirit by, by their nature. And this is the great requirement for salvation. Humility. The believer must humble himself, acknowledge his sin, and cry out to God in total dependence for salvation. Just like children, they're completely dependent on their parents for life. But just think, though, the best illustration Jesus could come up with to describe what it looks like to be the greatest in the kingdom was a child. That, that says something, right? That, I think that says something about how God, how Christ views children. Clearly, Jesus had a high regard for the state of childhood. 
a high view of children as a class, children as a class of being, to use them as a model for conversion of a kingdom citizen says something. Now hold that thought and just turn the page to Matthew 19. Next passage, just next chapter, Matthew 19, 13 through 15. It says, right after this, 1913, it says, Then some children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now this passage We have the disciples, they're trying to prohibit these children from coming to Jesus. Culturally, they had a low view of children. In the ancient Near East, in in Jewish culture as well, children were nuisances, burdens. The parallel in Luke mentions that some of these kids were babies. And you get the impression that the disciples, it's like they assume, you know, the kingdom of God, it's, it's devoid of children. This is adult stuff here. This is adult matters, this gospel work, following Jesus, kingdom work. This is adult stuff. Just leave the, leave the kids at home. Wait till they get older. But Christ's view of children is radically different, and his rebuke of them, I think, is very telling. He accepts these children indiscriminately and teaches that the kingdom belongs to such as these Notice he makes no distinction among the children, like the elect and unelect. Like, well, these kids are elect. They can come. There's no distinction here, obviously. He accepts them as a class, as a class of children. Now, granted, he does not say that the kingdom belongs to these children. He says it belongs to those like these. So that's another analogy. We get that. The kingdom belongs to those like children. He's making another point about true conversion. The parallel in Mark, Jesus adds, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So he's teaching about the nature of true conversion. We understand that. No one disagrees that with that. But I tend to agree with MacArthur here who, who argues that at the same time, this, this whole analogy, though, it only works if it's rooted in truth, as it goes with all of Christ's analogies, pretty much. It only works if... if, if the analogy he's drawing is rooted in truth, which is to say, if, if these young children as a class were not accepted into the kingdom, his whole analogy of using these, these kids as examples of kingdom citizens really falls flat. Could Jesus really use children as a class representing kingdom citizens if they weren't regarded as such? Did you get what I'm saying? Like, if the whole, if the analogy falls flat, if, if Christ didn't view them as actual representatives of, of kingdom citizens, children as a class. I'm not suggesting that, you know, these kids were all born saved and later they, they lose their salvation. No, obviously not. It just appears that Jesus views children as a class, as kingdom citizens, such that if one died, they would be granted entrance into the kingdom. Certainly, I think at least a case could be made along, this, uh, along these lines. And I think these, these couple of passages in the Gospels, they, they only move us closer to this view of infant salvation. I don't find any verses in Scripture that lead us away, only verses that, that take us there, take us closer and closer to a view that God chooses to elect those who die in infancy. Now, one more strand before we make some conclusions here. One more piece of evidence, one more leg of the stool. Number three, a lack of willful sin. We're talking about three, three strands of, of evidence or reasoning from Scripture as to why we might believe that God chooses to, to save those who die in infancy. And I want you to think about this, lack of willful sin. Turn to Romans 1. There's another one I want you to turn to. Romans chapter 1 couple verses in Romans here. We'll read 18 through 21. Again, familiar, but what I'm about to point out, I'm going to still bet you've never thought about this before, this facet from this passage. You know these verses, but listen, Romans 1, 18 through 21. 
He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor God or honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile and their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Okay, we we know this passage. It's teaching that, that through creation and through conscience, God has revealed himself and his will in sufficient manner. God's power, God's glory are revealed to all through creation and God's will, God's morality are revealed to all through conscience. God has, has given this declaration to all people. Gentiles, though, and that's what he's talking about, those outside the people of God, just, which was once all of us. Gentiles, they have, though, suppressed that knowledge of God, that truth in unrighteousness. The knowledge of God through creation and conscience, they have suppressed it in unrighteousness. They have denied the truth of creation and conscience, which makes them without excuse for their rebellion and unbelief. See, it says that makes them without excuse. Note carefully, what is it that makes a person without excuse in judgment? The context is judgment, God's wrath being poured out. What makes these people without excuse? Well, it's the fact that to them, God has been clearly seen. God has been clearly understood. They know the truth of God, his power and his will through creation, through conscience. They know it, but they suppress it. They know better, and that's why they're without excuse. But now think about this. Doesn't this also suggest that if a person cannot see God or understand God, if they have no knowledge of the truth of God, if they have no concept of creation or conscience, that that they would have some excuse at the judgment? I think it does. I think it, it tells us just that. That if a person cannot understand anything because they don't have the mental capacity, they would have an excuse at judgment. Infants, small children, the mentally handicapped, they can neither understand God's revelation nor even express unbelief. They're incapable of the type of rebellion he's talking about because this rebellion is, is rooted in knowledge and deliberate action. Rather, the condemned rebel is described later in verse 30 as a hater of God. In verse 32, look, it says, They know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, but they do it anyway. Just think about that. The condemned rebel here, he knows God, but he hates God in his heart. Also, he knows that what he is doing is wrong before God, that it's a sin worthy of death. His conscience convicts him. He may suppress that, but he knows that in his heart of hearts, yet he does it anyway. That's why this person is condemned. They're sinning against knowledge. One could hardly say, though, that an infant hates God or that a small child, though they're still a sinner, understands that what he is doing is worthy of death before God, yet he does it anyway. Children just don't have such an understanding. And here's a principle we've seen already developed in the verses we've already looked at, that people are held accountable to the measure of truth they have access to. People are held accountable to the measure of truth they have access to. And for this reason, it seems infants and children are not culpable in the same sense as those whose sins are willful and premeditated. There's no accountability for sin without understanding. That's the principle. There's no accountability for sin without understanding. Now, Paul, he made actually a similar point in Romans 5.13. Again, I'm going to be quick. You can look at these references if you're fast, but he mentioned over there, sin is not imputed when there is no law. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. It means that God doesn't reckon sin unless a person has knowledge of sin, which comes through God's law. So here's an example. 
Think of the Jews before Moses, before the law of Moses, right up to the Exodus. They could eat all the pork they wanted. It wasn't a sin. There had been no revelation. That, that was a sin, no knowledge that this was new, God's will or new will for them. So they could eat all they wanted. No problem. But after the law of Moses, God now revealed to them and held them accountable. This is now your standard. No more pork. Well, at that point and thereafter, for them, it, it was a sin. All of a sudden. Why? Well, they had now knowledge of God's law. They were now held accountable to this higher standard. Likewise, Gentiles. Gentiles, and Paul develops this point. Romans 2, Romans 5, we'll go to 2 in a second. Gentiles, they're never held accountable to the law of Moses. It's not their law. They're not under it. They have no knowledge of it. It's a covenant law for the nation of Israel. So God has never held them accountable for sinning per the law of Moses. They're not under it. Those sins are not reckoned to them. But that they're still sinners, and their accountability is tied to their knowledge of sin. And this is where we get to Romans 2 which I'm going to summarize this for the sake of time, where Gentiles are not without excuse, though, as he's condemning all in Romans 1 through 3, simply that all people, all Gentiles, they're still accountable to the law of God written on their hearts. And that's in the verses you have written down here. We're not going to read it for time. But in this passage, Romans 2, 11 through 15, Paul teaches that God's judgment falls according to how people respond to the measure of truth they've received. The Jews, they're accountable to the law of Moses. That's what they've received. Gentiles, not accountable to the law of Moses, but they're still accountable to what he calls the law of God written on their hearts. That's just conscience. The Bible doesn't give us an explicit list of this law on the heart, but it's clear that all people have sufficient knowledge of right and wrong written on their hearts. So that their consciences can either accuse them or defend them. Being made in the image of God, we come with a stamp of God's will. God's basic morality, his, his moral law written on our hearts, activated by the conscience, which tells us right from wrong. Now people in old age, or not even old age, but just with age, you can kill the conscience. You can, you can silence the conscience, but it's still there. And it has still condemned the person. It's no wonder, this is why, by the way, all civilizations in all history have affirmed that murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, adultery is wrong, that they had no direct revelation from God. They just, this is the law of God in their conscience. All people, even Gentiles, apart from the law of Moses, they're still guilty before God, though, because like Paul said in chapter 1, they've all suppressed the truth of God in creation and conscience, and no one lives up to the demands of his conscience. All people have sinned against their conscience, which has convicted them of, of God's standard of right and wrong. Now, how does this apply to infant salvation? Well, again, the principle is that people are held accountable to the measure of truth they have access to. They're held accountable to, to the law they have, the law they understand, whether it's in the Moses or in their heart. But infants, they're not able to comprehend any truth, any law. They can't truly comprehend right from wrong. This would suggest that although they're, they're still born sinners with a sinful nature, God is not going to hold them accountable in the same way he holds adults accountable. And that's precisely what we've seen played out in all those verses we, we just looked at. There's no accountability for sin, no reckoning of sin without understanding. Understanding is a key aspect in God reckoning and holding people accountable for their sin. So in all, it seems then you can make a case for the relative innocence of children in Scripture. Key word is relative. We're not denying original sin. We talked about that last week. But it is interesting that in two passages in the Old Testament, God himself refers to little ones as innocent you have it in your passage, in your notes, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 19, 4 through 5. He's talking about infants and how they committed child sacrifice. And he says, they have filled this place, the temple, with the blood of the innocent. It's, it's relative innocence. We, we know it's comparative innocence. But he still refers to them as, as innocent. God, I think God understands, like, like we do, there's a relative innocence of, of children. We're not denying their sinfulness or their sin nature. 
But it seems God takes into account their lack of knowledge of sin, good and evil, and God. Infants, children, small children, they're not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They don't hate God. They don't know that their sins are worthy of death before God, yet they do them anyway. They don't know right, before, right from wrong. They have no concept of death, let alone eternal death. They have not refused God in unbelief. They're not responsible moral agents. Even our own law recognizes that. Tragically, we hear in the news from time to time, one small child found a gun in the home and accidentally killed another child in the home. We've all heard this. It's the greatest tragedy perhaps there is. But the, the, the little child, the three-year-old, the five-year-old who accidentally pulled the trigger, they don't go to jail. There's no punishment. There's no penalty. Our law just, you know, over, you know, it's, it's, no, no justice is served because we recognize they, they, had, they did not know what they're doing. They had no concept of what would happen, of death. They, they just had no knowledge. And without this knowledge, there's no culpability. There's, there's no punishment. There's no penalty whatsoever for the child. The parents might be to blame here, but not the child. Even our own sense of justice, we would pardon manslaughter for a child because we get they have no understanding. And so it's, it's, there's, a, there's a, not a reckoning of guilt here. And this consistent reality in Scripture, whenever we see someone judged in Scripture, it's always for willful sin. Sin against knowledge. Deliberate sin, rebellion, and unbelief in the face of God and his will. And that just can't be said to be true of infants, small children, and those with severe mental handicaps. So to try and make some conclusion at this point, we could, we could go on. But I believe that, that what we've studied this week and last week, it, it gives us sufficient evidence to lead us to believe that God views and treats infants who die differently than adults. All adults... They're without excuse because they have knowledge of their willful, uh, they have knowledge, they have willful sin, rebellion, unbelief. They have deeds of sin, which they know in their conscience deserve death before God, yet they do them anyway. None of this applies to infants, though. God, uh, knowing God's favorable view of little ones in Scripture and God's gracious character toward the humble, it stands to reason, therefore, that God instead chooses to show mercy to such little ones and, and bring them to salvation through the miracle of regeneration. At this point, I would agree with MacArthur's conclusion here when he says, quote, All children who die before they reach a state of moral awareness and culpability in which they understand their sin and corruption so that their sins are deliberate are graciously saved eternally by God through the work of Jesus Christ. They're counted as elect by sovereign choice because they're innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief, by which works they would be justly condemned to eternal punishment, end quote. Theoretically, we would have to say that technically, if God wanted to, he, he could condemn infants simply because of Adam's guilt. That's, that's true per original sin. Although God would be just to do so, that view seems inconsistent with what we've studied about God's view of children. It seems more consistent to conclude that God's grace and mercy extends to, to the least of these in, in such cases. We have a little time. I want to read an extended quote here from R.A. Webb, uh, an old Presbyterian. He says this, just, just to think, if an infant were condemned purely because of original sin, just, just think about that. This quote helps you think about that. So listen, it's kind of long, but he says, quote, If a dead infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment because sin is a reality, but the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It could not tell itself why it was so awfully smitten, and consequently, the whole meaning and significance of its sufferings, being to it a conscience enigma, the very essence of the penalty would be absent, and justice would be disappointed, cheated of its validation, end quote. Do you get that? Part of judgment in hell is that there's an understanding that you're suffering because you have rejected God in unbelief and you chose your sin. 
And especially for the infant who dies and has committed no deeds of sin, would be sent to hell just per original sin. There, there's zero understanding of why are they in hell? And why are they suffering? There's no connection. You'd also have to assume that God would take their infantile mind and mature it enough that they could understand their suffering, even though they've done nothing wrong, just suffering for Adam's imputed guilt. To me, I think that's just incompatible with the verses we've seen about God's view of children and culpability of sin tied to knowledge. I'd agree again with Spurgeon who said, quote, We've learned humbly to submit our judgments to God's will, and we dare not criticize or accuse the Lord of all. That's true. He is just. Let him do as he may. Whatever he reveals, we will accept. That's true. But, he says, he never has, and I think he never will, require of us so desperate a stretch of faith as to see his goodness in the eternal misery of an infant cast into hell, end quote. I, I find that compelling. I, I agree. Now, I understand this is not an explicit teaching of Scripture. We, we've said that. We have to be fair with that. The eternal fate of infants who die is simply not addressed. But I believe we have enough to safely conclude that God shows his unconditional favor on these little ones. At the very least, you can say this is an uncontradicted hope. That's a phrase that's often used here, an uncontradicted hope. At the end of the day, we don't know anybody's salvation. You might think someone who's a super Christian, like, oh, they're for sure going to heaven, and they pass away, and you, you, you end up in heaven, and they're not there. Right? People can have a double life and false faith. We never really know who's saved until we get there, right? Uh, yet we have, for all people, we have a hope based on their profession of faith and their fruit. We, we can stand to reason that this person is surely saved. Well, with infants, through the case we've built, we have at the very least an uncontradicted hope. At the same time, I think we can explain why there is no direct teaching on this in Scripture. I think it's a very good reason that God has not stated this directly in Scripture. Just imagine, what if God said in Scripture that all infants who die go to heaven, straight up? Or if he said, everyone under 12 who dies, instant heaven. If God said that, what would happen? How many countless people would use that as justification to to kill their kids for infanticide? I think that's how you pronounce it. Or for abortion. They would have this twisted justification to, well, I guarantee the salvation of my children if I kill them. And that case has been made many times as well. God, in his wisdom, I think he's left us with just this, an uncontested, uncontradicted hope that infants who die will be saved. Now, to, to wrap it up, a final question in your notes. You have here last question. If this is true, if you're convinced, if this is true, there's a, a necessary final question we have to address. To whom does this apply? To whom does this infant salvation apply? We've been calling this infant salvation, but really, like, to who, who does this apply to? What is, or alternately, the question is, what's the age of accountability? You've heard that question, right? You've heard that concept. What is it? If this position is correct, the final question, to whom does it apply? Like I said, we've been talking primarily about infants. But all would include children up to some age. The question is, what what age? What's the cutoff for this merciful salvation? This has been a pressing question. As long as people have believed infant salvation, which is since the the church, this has been a, a corollary question. The scripture does not mention an age of accountability, but the concept seems clearly taught. I think the verses we've looked at, there seems to be some, some age of accountability. The, the, the word isn't there, just like the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but I think a concept is implied. Now, at the same time, though, I believe it's misleading to call this an age of accountability. I think it's better to refer to this as a condition of accountability. Because age really has nothing to do with it. It's a condition of accountability. And I think we've seen that in, in all the verses we, we looked at. No age is given in Scripture. It's not tied to a specific age. It's tied to a condition. A condition of what? Understanding. I think we can connected those dots. That culpability, accountability, guilt is tied to a level of understanding. 
So this would be a condition of accountability based on understanding. Understanding what? Well, I gave you a little list in your notes. This could probably be expanded, but nonetheless, I think we've discerned several elements, and I tried to tie these to all the verses we looked at. A knowledge of God through creation, a knowledge of God's will through conscience, that is, knowing right and wrong, knowing good and evil. Like many times, God in the Old Testament, you know, they had no knowledge of good and evil, so they weren't held accountable. Willful violation of God's will, which is to say deliberate sin. An understanding of death and, and even eternity. Knowledge that such sins make one worthy of death, like Romans 1 said. A hatred of God, yet suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. And ultimately, unbelief. A willful unbelief, which all eventually come to. I would say clearly infants don't meet these conditions. Young children don't meet these conditions. But after this, to try and give some age at which a child does meet these conditions, can't say. You really can't say. Surely it differs from child to child. I do believe that. It's a case-by-case basis. Some have pointed out, you know, Jewish tradition, the reason the apostles don't talk about this is they were just assuming their Jewish tradition, which believed children were accountable at age 12 or 13. That was their standard. That may be the case. But ultimately, though, it it comes down to this willful rebellion, disobedience, and unbelief, according to knowledge. Children, they're certainly sinners. And some of them can be really out of control. But at what point do they understand that their sins make them guilty of death, worthy of death, yet they do it anyway? Like Romans 1, 32, connected those dots. What point do they know, like, this, this is a sin before God. This, this is worthy of death. But I'm going to do it anyway and approve of those who do the same. I don't know. Can't give you an answer there. That's just the, the gray area of Scripture, that if this teaching is true, there, there, is, there is a condition of accountability. Where is it for a given child? I don't know. You're going to have to make an evaluation call on, on their level of understanding. I don't think that's easy to do, though. The same goes for those with mental handicaps. It's hard to say what they truly understand. Surely it doesn't apply. Some are very high functioning and this wouldn't apply to them. But some are born in a near vegetative state or with a severe disability and they never leave that. You know, they might be 60 years old and we would say that they still have the mind of a child and they've always been that way. I do think this would apply to to some like that. What's the cutoff? Don't know. Can't tell you. Uh, we go through this condition list. Do they understand this? You, you can try and gauge it. But I really think that's, that's God's business, not ours. I will point out one thing really quick. We're a little over time, but just a, a little thing here. Something I've never seen anyone comment on this, but a contributing factor I've always used is nakedness. It's going to sound a little strange, but think about this. Adam and Eve before the fall, they were running around naked, right? They were unclothed. But there was no sin or shame involved attached to their nakedness whatsoever. They were pure and innocent. That's why. There's no guilt, no shame. Today, what's interesting is infants and small children, they reflect the same purity and innocence as Adam and Eve before the fall in that they register no shame and guilt and nakedness, right? Everyone who's a parent has some funny stories of their kid just running around naked. I have one a few days ago. Olivia out of the bath, doing somersaults naked. It's like, what's going on here? No shame. W- would you, anyone want to volunteer to do a naked somersault right now? I don't think so. Right? This is pretty clear. But children, as they get older, they, they clearly go through a shift where they start to sense shame in nakedness. Right? That's part of the fall, actually. Part of the curse. There's guilt and shame attached to that, after which God clothed the nakedness of Adam and Eve with that sacrifice, a clear picture of him covering their shame and their guilt. I actually preached a sermon back in the day, a theology of nakedness, talking about that guilt. Very interesting. It's on the website. But to me, I've always seen this as a contributing factor in this condition of accountability. When does a child sense the shame and the guilt of nakedness. It's not a hard and fast rule because it's culturally conditioned, but I think it's interesting food for thought, isn't it? Again, no age is given in scripture, I think for good reason. This issue is not tied to age, it's tied to a condition. It's a condition tied to understanding of God, right and wrong, and personal sin. 
It's very hard to make a judgment call for, for older kids. But at the end of the day, uh, this is what we say. For, for parents, for all parents who's, who have lost a little one, we are simply left with a great hope in Scripture that God is good and he regards little ones with mercy and grace. We have this, this uncontested hope. And we can bake on the fact that God always does what is right, understanding that if anyone is judged, God is always perfectly just. He does no wrong. We don't have to worry or fear that. But at the same time, we've, we've seen many reasons to highlight the glory of God's grace when it comes to little ones. God is gracious. God is loving. And we're just left with an uncontested, an uncontradicted hope that God shows mercy to little ones who perish. And I think it's best to simply live in this hope while entrusting it to God and his perfect wisdom to, to sort out this, this age, this condition of accountability. Instead, as parents, I would simply say, you don't worry about that. Your business is to impart the truth of God to their hearts. ASAP, you leave the rest to God. You, you just minister to them, uh, stewarding them. And at the end of the day, we, we live trusting God. We live under the grace of God. What else can we do? But we rest in God's grace, knowing that God's grace is greater than our sins. And we have, a, I think, a sure hope that that is true for little ones as well. Well, a little bit over, but I think that'll do it for tonight. I hope that helped. hope that provides some clarity, at least weighing in some scriptures and, and one perspective, perspective I do take. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it here. We're going to pray. If you do have questions, though, just come see me now. But I think we should end it here. Let's go ahead and pray. Our great Father and our gracious Father, we begin and praise you for your grace. We know for ourselves here, we're, we're sinners. We have sinned against your holy will. At one point, we were those rebels. Whether we openly acknowledge it or not, Lord, in our heart of hearts, we knew you, but yet we suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and, and chose our sin. It's only by a marvel of your grace, Lord, that, that you opened our eyes. You made us new. You, you gave us new hearts, new eyes to see to see our sin and shame, yet to see Christ and, and his death on the cross, the, the, the payment you made to save us, Lord. We look at what great lengths you went to save rebels like ourselves, and we marvel at your grace that, that you chose to save any. We thank you for this, Lord, and I think we have enough to, to bank on your character, your mercy, your goodness toward little ones this evening, Lord, knowing that they, they're not rebels like we were in that outward sense, and, and that your grace is, is greater than their sin. We know that's true for us, and we're, we're going to bank on this hope, Lord, that you're a God of mercy and grace who, who, though you need not, you don't have to save anyone by your free will, by your unconditional election of chosen to, to save the little ones. We thank you for that. We praise you. And whatever the case, Lord, we will be among those who praise your grace for all eternity, and we trust it will be with many who, who never saw the light of day, but they will sing loudly your, your praise and your grace as well. And, uh, and I think that only magnifies your grace. Thank you for this study. Bless us as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.